Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Legal Trends by Hannes Snellman podcast. In this first series, we discuss international litigation trends with prominent lawyers from around the world and apply our Nordic perspective to them. What are the current litigation trends in the world? Will they reach the Nordics anytime soon, or are they already here? I am Anna-Maria Tamminen, a partner in the dispute resolution team at Hannes Snellman. And I am Helen Lehta, managing associate in the dispute resolution team at Hannes Snellman. Now in this episode, we discuss the litigation of data privacy and the emergence of GDPR fines. For this discussion, we are very honored to have with us today, Mr. Philip Nolan from Mason Hayes and Curran in Ireland. Mr. Nolan can rightfully be described as one of the foremost experts in his field in the world. To name but a few of his references, he's advising Instagram and WhatsApp on regulatory engagements in the EU and on various GDPR compliance issues. He's also one of Facebook's leading external privacy counsel in the EU. Welcome to our podcast, Philip. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And Philip will be joined today by one of our colleagues, Caroline Sundbari, who is a counsel at Hannes Nelman's Stockholm office and a GDPR specialist. Caroline will comment upon similar trends through what she sees in her practice here in the Nordics. Hello, Caroline, and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Philip, could you please briefly describe what kind of matters uh, you've been involved in in respect to data privacy and GDPR investigations and litigations for our listeners this morning? Yeah, sure. Um, So, yeah, I head up a pretty large team of data protection lawyers and um, contentious lawyers who do a great deal of work acting for US-based and primarily US-based technology companies, a lot of them being consumer internet uh, services companies and social media companies. And we do, for those companies, we, well, at a high level, we do deal with a lot of their technology requirements, but in particular, we do a great deal of uh, data protection work for them. And by data protection work, obviously that breaks down. We deal with the non-contentious side of things, um, but more interestingly, I guess, uh, we deal with a lot of the regulatory inquiries that are increasingly um, increasing in volume uh, over in recent years. Um, and I guess the size and scale of our practice flows from the fact that a lot of these US multinational tech companies, as people know, set up their international headquarters in Ireland and have done that traditionally. And I guess flowing from that, they have often set up their main establishments under the GDPR uh, out of Ireland. And flowing from that, their principal regulator or lead supervisory authority, um, in many instances, is the Irish Data Protection Commission. So when issues arise, um, the Irish Data Protection Commission tends to take a leading role in regulating these tech companies. And, And consequently, a lot of the advisory work and a lot of the regulatory work and the litigation work, uh, which can spill out of some of these uh, regulatory investigations, tends to be uh, done out of Dublin. So, Philip, looking at the most notable GDPR fines which have been issued so far, we have, for instance, Google, H&M, British Airways and so forth. Is there any conclusion we can draw from these as to what types of violations are being investigated and or fined the most? Yeah, like there's definitely plenty to try and infer, but I guess the first point to say it's very early days when it comes to fines. And the other preliminary point one should make in terms of GDPR investigations, and there's there's a lot of them, many are being led by the Irish Data Protection Commission. And of course, all of the other supervisory authorities around Europe are conducting their own investigations. And when we talk about the end of those investigations, people invariably default to a conversation around fines. But I guess it's important to point out that 
the end point of an investigation doesn't need to be fines. And in my experience, often the most effective endpoints of these investigations for the data subjects, you know, uh, who often get forgotten about in these conversations are not fines, but rather are alternative corrective measures or non-pecuniary and non-financial corrective measures, which the GDPR under Article 58.2 permits supervisory authorities to uh, adopt and direct against the companies in question. So, for example, an order asking a company to bring its security in compliance with the data security obligations of the GDPR is often far more useful you know, for the affected data subjects in a security breach than a fine of two or three million. But to move across the fines, because um, I guess uh, people are always very interested in the numbers and the trends are, I mean, it's variable, right? Um, we've seen some uh, supervisory authorities uh, going high, if you like, as a trend. And uh, we've seen some pretty large fines issue, for example, by the Camille in France. We saw uh, before, um, late last year, we saw pretty large fines uh, against Amazon, um, I think it was 30 or 35 million, and then against Google, uh, where the collective fines in two related cases were nearly 100 million. So we're seeing some very large fines, and some of those have been directed at tech companies. Equally, we've seen some really small fines. Um, and I mean, there's an instance, there was a fine issued last year against Google, uh, our large tech company, uh, by the Hungarian supervisory authority for 28 euro. Okay, so <laughs> that's quite an extraordinary delta. Um, so, 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 are we fastening on specific trends around quantum? The answer is certainly not. Um, we, you know, and I think so. That you have a very large diffusion in terms of quantum of fines. The other diffusion you have is the volume of fines being issued by different supervisory authorities. So. I guess some of the leaders would be the Italian uh, supervisory authority, the Garante, and the Spanish supervisory authority. I think they've issued over 170 fines um, as of January. Um, so you have some supervisory authorities with a very high cadence uh, and turnover in terms of fines. And then other supervisory authorities um, haven't issued as many. But I think, again, people can fall into this trap um, of you know, assessing the number of fines with the busyness or the level of engagement of a supervisory authority. And I think that's wrong because, you know, some supervisory authorities just move very fast to the point of a fine, whereas others launch a great deal of engagement and have a lot of engagement with companies, but the engagement can either move relatively slower, so the fines haven't, these inquiries haven't reached the point of fines yet, or alternatively, the goal of the engagement is not to fine. Um, so you can have supervisory authorities with a lot of engagement with uh, companies, uh, who are achieving a lot of things in terms of corrective measures and directing companies to bring their processing operations into compliance with the GDPR, but they're not necessarily, you know, shoveling out the fines. Um, so that's, I guess, another uh, a point to be aware of. I mean, the question is, will we see greater harmonization in due course in relation to fines? And there's been some movements afoot um, to bring a kind of a, a more of a structured methodology to the way in which GDPR fines are issued. So the basis of fining in the GDPR is set out in Article 83.2. We have a series of factors which should be taken into account. And, you know, the trends, as you study the decisions issued in GDPR fines, different supervisory authorities are taking different approaches to applying those factors. And interestingly, in the last year or two, we saw um, the German supervisory authorities come together and suggest 
a fairly structured methodology, almost like an algorithmic methodology for computing fines, um, whereby a series of, you know, um, specific variables and factors were to be used and we literally put into this almost like an algorithmic type process and at the end it would like spew out a number right it so, had to be the germans right yeah yeah <laughs> precisely so and and i know that's been sort of discussed at, at higher levels i'm not sure if that works right mm. um equally then you see supervised authorities that just cherry pick they just focus on one or two factors so there's definitely i mean i think that's where progress can be made in having a kind of a more harmonized approach to dealing with the factors, but we're not there yet. So on 16 July 2020 last year, the European Court of Justice delivered its awaited judgment in the Schrems 2 case, basically declaring the privacy shield a key mechanism for transfers of personal data from the EU to the US invalid. The court considered the validity of the standard contractual clauses, referred to as SECs, uh, to remain valid, uh, but found that organizations must ensure that the use of SECs is sufficient to comply with the required level of data protection under EU law. What can you tell us uh, about the sort of latest status or developments in Ireland following following that decision? Sure. Um, so after the case, um, uh, the Schrems 2 judgment was handed down last July, um, the Data Protection Commission in Ireland, who'd been a party to that case, um, issued a, a preliminary decision against Facebook in relation to its transfers to the US, um, proposing a suspension uh, of those transfers because of issues the DPC had, and it's because of its interpretation of the Schrems 2 case. Um, consequent on, from that, um, both Facebook and Max Schrems separately challenged um, the DPC's issuance of that draft decision. And um, the Facebook case was heard last December, and that would be that was a judicially a judicial review. So the subject matter was about the fair procedures that underpinned the making of the draft decision by the DPC in August. And uh, Schrems's case um, was scheduled to be held uh, in January of this year, a month later. Um, that, in fact, didn't go ahead. Um, so the status at present is as follows. Um, one awaits the um, decision of the judge in the Facebook's uh, judicial review of the Data Protection Commission's draft decision. And so we're sort of, it, it's a case of wait and see. Um, and meanwhile, interestingly, you have a, a whole suite of developments happening at a European level, um, some very positive, uh, such as we're expecting you know, new uh, standard contractual clauses in a matter of months, uh, possibly uh, in May next month, uh, to be issued by the European Commission. They've been consulting on a draft for some time. So once they're adopted, you know, they've been adopted to take account of the complexities of the Schrems 2 decision and to create a new set of um, standard contractual clauses that are aligned with uh, the nuances of that decision. So I would imagine once they're published, there'll be significant uptake by um, organizations across Europe in terms of those SECs, and there'll be various different types of SECs, including new novel SECs for processor to processor transfers. So that's certainly a positive development. And I guess the greater uncertainty then lies in relation to the concept of supplemental measures 
um, insofar as they are acquired in certain countries and what does that concept of supplemental measures mean and what must they comprise and when are they needed. So these are the really vexed issues and as folks know the European Data Protection Board have issued draft recommendations in relation to them which precipitated a huge uh, set of responses uh, from organizations, from companies right across Europe in, in terms of commentary as to the shape of those measures and what they should look like. And that has significantly slowed down that process by the European Data Protection Board. So one awaits to see what those draft recommendations are going to morph into. Um, and again, we expect those to uh, be published, as I would imagine, in a matter of months. So, you know, very interesting issues afoot. And um, I wish I could say there's lots of certainty, but I think with new SECs, there certainly will be a, a more robust basis for companies um, to rely on uh, in relation to their transfers. And the rest of Europe awaits with you. <laughs> yeah. And on that point, perhaps, when we talk about supervising authorities in different jurisdictions, You already mentioned, Philip, that some have a tendency, or at least thus far, have issued larger fines, other have issued, others have issued smaller fines, but that that is not the only measurement of engagement. So what would you say, is there any other notable differences in how the supervising authorities in different jurisdictions approach corrective measures? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, even aside from corrective, I mean, <clears throat> there are, firstly, right? I mean, take the Luxembourgish, <clears throat> excuse me, supervisory authority who a number of months ago commented, look, their goal is not to achieve fines. Their goal is to achieve GDPR compliance, right? So you have some supervisors actually coming out and stating that we don't have this obsession with uh, fines, but rather our obsession is to get and to foster GDPR compliance. Um, I mean, I think ultimately you need a balanced view whereby supervisory authorities are willing to find, but are also carefully considering, you know, bringing organizations closer to GDPR compliance. Um, so in terms of practice, I suppose some other trends, I mean, in terms of regulatory inquiries, there are certainly trends amongst different member states in terms of the manner in which inquiries are conducted and the pace at which inquiries are conducted for sure. And, um, And there are certainly some uh, supervisory authorities where that will move very rapidly in terms of uh, from the moment uh, an investigation is commenced to the point of issuing a fine can all happen, you know, in, in less than six months. Whereas in other organizations, sorry, in other supervisory authorities, those processes can take um, much more like 12 to 18 months. And that often reflects the, you know, just the regulatory traditions in those countries. Um, And, and one has to be just respectful of that. But there are definitely, uh, there can be a different pace at which inquiries can be conducted. I mean, another interesting trend, uh, again, when we, people always focus on the quantum of fines in different countries, but another recent trend is the overturning of fines, okay? So if you look across Belgium, and then you go across to Germany uh, and into Austria, with some of the, like Germany and Austria, for example, some of the most notable fines that were issued in the last year or two, GDPR fines and largest, have been overturned in the courts. So like the Deutsche Wohnen fine, um, I think it was the Berlin Supervisory Authority issued, that's been overturned. The Austrian Post uh, fine issued by the Austrian Supervisory Authority, which I think was one of the largest in Austria, that was overturned by the courts. So, you know, um, sometimes one finds that, yeah, while people can rush through an investigation, get to a fine, the fine um, may not be supported by the courts. And that all, I guess, what does that show? It just shows what an emerging area of law this is. Um, and that uh, things certainly have not settled. And 
when you see courts overturning findings, that suggests that supervisory authorities, you know, are right for taking a measured, um, you know, an incremental approach towards their investigations. So, Caroline, uh, Philip's given us an overview of, of the status of these cases in Europe and how the regulatory authorities are are processing um, the issues. How does all of this reflect with your experience in the Nordics and, and the Nordic regu regulators? It has followed pretty much the same picture. Uh, it was slow in the beginning, many investigations ongoing. You can also see that those who have been the most cooperative, they have actually gotten less fine or sometimes even not a fine at all. Um, we got maybe three or four decisions just the last few weeks that did not issue a fine, but rather telling, please fix this, um, rather than just putting a fine and then, then saying, letting the fine speak for it. So, um, And we also see a few litigations where in court, the fine has been decreased. That was the case for the Google fine that was decreased with at least a million um, euros. Um, so they were still fine, but they decreased the fine. So it's the same, I would say. And the Swedish authority is very um, working on, on trying to be on the same level as the other authorities. Uh, you can really tell that they are cooperating and trying to, to get a similar approach. So they're not in any way um, different from the others. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point there around mitigation, right? I mean, uh, the, you know, when you talk about preparedness for companies, you know, if they're subject to an inquiry, right? Um, inquiries, as we said, they can take months, sometimes they can take a couple of years. I mean, during that time, companies can do a great deal to address the underlying issues, right? What are inquiries about security breaches, not making good chapter three rights uh, issues, um, could be in relation to uh, processing of children's data, often in relation to transparency. So when investigations are launched, companies, they don't need to wait until the end to be told that their transparency could have been better. It's, you know, companies can go from very shortly after inquiries launch and improve their transparency. And these mitigating steps, and the same goes for security, um, I think can have quite an important impact on the quantum of fines issued by supervisory authorities. Or if that mitigating action is ignored by supervisory authorities, it certainly can provide a basis uh, for companies to challenge the fines if mitigation is ignored, because it is a central principle in Article 83.2 of the GDPR is this concept of mitigation, as is the concept of aggravation, <laughs> you do the opposite, but we'll park that. So it's not over until it's over. <laughs> Correct. No, and, and I mean, you, you shouldn't, if you are under an investigation, we always tell client that, of course, you shouldn't tell them, oh, we're doing all this wrong as well. Like, you shouldn't self-incriminate yourself. But when you get a question, trying to fix it along the way has really proven. I think that's one of the reasons why Kri, uh, in one of the recent decisions in December, did not get a fine, because they were fixing things along the way on in, in, and all the other seven that, that got fines up to um, several tens of um, million of euros, they got high fines, but CRI did not because they were very cooperative, among other things. So, so that's, I think that's, that's a general, and that's, of course, the ultimate aim is to follow the GDPR. No, that's what, and that goes back to my point around, you know, like the data subject wins in that scenario, right? I mean, the media don't win because they don't get a big juicy fine to talk about. 
but ultimately with improved compliance, you know, you have better safeguards for data subjects have been achieved through the regulatory engagement, albeit without a dramatic end. But we talked a lot of fines. Uh, we haven't talked about damages. I mean, that's the other, that's the other risk usually identified uh, in these situations. But we have not in Sweden seen hardly any cases. Um, if there are any, they're very minimal and, and not getting a lot of attention. How's things in Ireland? Have you have you seen a lot of claims from data subjects of damages yet? Yeah, it's, it's a super interesting area, right? And like when I gave a lot of talks around the time of the GDPR coming out, me and my colleagues, we kind of warned, we said, everyone's focusing on fines, but watch out for, you know, uh, Article 82 in the long grass because plaintiff litigation, you know, and the way in which one be, you know, groups of data subjects can be represented by not-for-profits, that does create a potential risk of a, a plaintiff litigation um, bar, if you like, emerging in Europe with parallels to what you see in the US. But like in Sweden, there certainly are actions in Ireland, yeah? And um, and so, the, and but what we're seeing is a lot of them are not making it to conclusion um, because, you know, once you hit the court system, there's a lot of work involved, uh, hearings, paperwork, and you find that given the the potential quantum of damages that may be awarded um, is so unclear that a lot of these cases are settling. Um, if you look across other countries, the same trend, you see that there are certainly cases, but there's a lot of settling happening. And insofar as you know, awards are being made, if you look to the Netherlands, where there's been a series of awards, the awards are looking like 800 euro, 1,000 euro, 950 euro. They're the sort of quantum of claims. And there's similar kind of echoes of that in Germany and in Austria, where there's been some awards. So you're seeing fairly um, low amounts being awarded. But I, I think you're going to see a greater amount of that litigation and perhaps more organization uh, be, you know, amongst classes. So, so the activity, it's, it's kind of simmering you know, under the radar and increasing, but, uh, but in terms of settlements, or sorry, um, awards being made by courts, we're not seeing that money yet in Ireland. So given all of this, what would be your takeaways for clients potentially subject to GDPR investigations? You mentioned fixing issues along the way, mitigation, et cetera. Anything else to add? Yeah, like... I suppose it's often like, you know, an organization can spend enormous amounts on, on GDPR compliance and turn themselves inside out trying to comply with every element of it. So I think what organizations have to do is there has to be a certain focus and prioritization of the issues. And in that regard, it's always good to see, well, what are the issues that are the subject of investigations? Where are companies getting into trouble? And they kind of fall into a series of buckets, right? So we talked about data security. That's an obvious one. Um, so investing in data security goes without saying. But the other point is, is investigating in security breach notification protocols and, and incident response protocols so that when the breach happens, there's very clear lines of communication through the organization, often from the IT team, through to the legal team, through to management, so that the notifications can be made in a timely fashion, right? Because that's what you saw in the Twitter case. That's how the fine arose. Literally, there was a lapse. It was around a holiday period. Communication from Twitter in the US across to Twitter in Ireland uh, was a couple of days slower than it should have been, possibly because of holidays. But and, and, and therefore, the fine was, was, was partially attributable to that. So really good communication chains um, in, in, in the event of security breaches is very important. 
aside from security, the other you then look to the other areas. It's it's complying with rights requests, right? It's sort of like you know operationalizing that is something companies have to do. They have to know how to recognize these requests and come in and be able to deal with them, you know, in a structured fashion in accordance with the one month or extended three month period. So again, operationalizing that. And then, I mean, just to pick other key areas, we always say children's data is undoubtedly a focus area. Cookies is undoubtedly a focus area. So they're areas that merit investment. If you're processing children's data, you need to think about additional safeguards, right? And this is, I would say, this will be the trend of 2021, 2022, as will cookies compliance. And then, of course, the data transfers issue, right? And I think, you know, the advice to companies on data transfers is, you know, is, is, study, do your diligence, understand what transfers are occurring uh, to what affiliates and non-affiliates and in what countries, and then understand, well, what legal basis are you purporting to rely on? And just to have that mapped out. And so I'm going on a little bit, but the final tip, and this is a Go really ahead. one, is, 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 is accountability and governance, right? Everyone just forgot about this, rushing to get GDPR compliance in place in 2018. What I mean by that is the writing down of key decisions in relation to the means and purposes of processing. So if a company is going to launch a new feature or a product, right, before that goes live, they need to write down, there needs to be an assessment of its compliance, and then the decision to commission and deploy that has to be actually written down, and a person has to make it, or a group with delegated authority, because when inquiries occur, the questions which regulators ask is, who made that decision? When was that decision made? Can I see that decision, right? And often, you know, people are kind of left, go, well, that was, it was made over a series of different meetings. So you have to go, no. So that whole idea of, it, it, it's acting, that's how financial services typically act. And that's how sort of, you know, um, other companies need to start moving towards that, that idea of writing down key decisions. And that's kind of, you know, takes a little bit of discipline. And generally when they have someone's name on them, the decisions tend to be better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. So that was certainly an extensive list of tips. Thanks very much for that. Um, Caroline, do you have anything to add in this respect? Uh, with so many good things said, so um, I don't know if I need to add anything, but when it comes to third country transfer, I think it's very important to, to of course, highlight who bears the risk of approving that transfer if it's ongoing. Um, and also it's not mainly the risk of a fine, that you need to assess, but also what will happen if the authority will tell you, you can no longer use this tool? Do you have a backup plan? And what will the effects be? Because as I said, that might happen or someone else will get told that this tool is not possible to use without modification. So um, I think it's very important to, to just not focus on the fine. So, and the reputational damage as well is of course very important to, to um, yeah. Caroline, you brought up also the question of we focus on the fines, but but there should also be some discussion on, on the damages. Um, in terms of mitigation, do you see any difference between do you see any difference between mitigating uh, both outcomes, first the fine and, and then the damages, or is there something else that companies should be thinking of in order to avoid damages further down the line? I think the risk, the cost of damages, ultimately, at least in Sweden, will, will be the litigation itself um, and what will happen to the company's uh, goodwill, so to say. Uh, we see the same level of fines. They're fairly low or damages awarded 
what we've seen so far in, in pre-GDPR, which I think is the same principle that would apply. It's between the 300 to 500 euros in damages. So, uh, I, and I'm not seeing that increasingly um, in the near future, at least. So, so I think, and and of course, we don't have class actions in that sense in Sweden. So, each data subject will have to pretty much bring on their own claim and and the risk of the cost thereof. So, so um, I don't know if we're going to see many of those cases um, as you've thought, but some I know some countries in Europe might see more of a class action like uh, suits coming in the near future. And Philip, are they available class actions in Ireland? Yeah, I mean, under the GDPR, a not-for-profit organization is entitled to act for a group of uh, data subjects. And that provision of GDPR yeah, has you know, been adopted and found its way into the Data Protection Act. So again, very early stage as uh, kind of talk of these, but there, there hasn't been a, a large number of them and certainly none have progressed. But it, as I said, it's it's very early days. And I think it, without question, one will see more. You know, the challenge for the plaintiff is that while the GDPR says, okay, if there's a contravention and if it causes material or non-material uh, damage, you will have a right to compensation. Um, more often than not, the damage is non-material. Uh, so in one th- sense, the plaintiff goes, great, all I have to show is non-material damage, inconvenience, distress, and there is an actionable right uh, to compensation. The difficulty is that courts, including, you know, throughout Europe, are, are they're not, uh, they are raising a threshold around that concept of material, non-material damage, and they are seeking proofs of it. And so plaintiffs are actually, you know, not quite, it's not quite as easy as one might have thought and some academics suggested to hit that non-material, non-material threshold. And we've seen it in some cases in Central European countries where plaintiffs have been unable to hit that standard. So I think the more likely actionable claims will be where there's really blatant, uh, you know, m- more direct and material losses, mm. such as a security breach. You know, one's, de- one's uh, bank account details are compromised and a sum of money, you know, is taken, for example. It's a highly simplistic example. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a quantifiable loss. And I think in instances where breaches cause quantifiable and measurable losses from a financial perspective, you will see more success and potentially more class actions. But as companies get better with security, there should be a lot less, you know. And I think that's a perspective every litigator can appreciate. (laughs) For sure. As we're nearing the end of the podcast, we would like to ask you a few more lighthearted questions, which we are asking all of our guests. So first of all, What's the most interesting litigation development which you have either seen in the last few years or where you anticipate to see a prominent litigation in the future? Well, I don't know if that's such a, an exciting question, but I mean, believe it or not, the topic... <laughs> We're excited by it. We're not judging the question. <laughs> I mean, in a way, we've just segued into it, right? I think, yeah. you know, there's the focus on damage, uh, sorry, on fines, but what is going to be interesting, I think, is this plaintiff litigation piece. And it's funny, like if you look at some organizations, they have all these trackers of GDPR fines. I don't think there's enough tracking of, you know, plaintiff compensation awards. And I think, you know, if you're a junior associate in a law firm, uh, you know, with an international profile, this is a really interesting task uh, that should be done. So I I find that's going to be really interesting watching those trends, especially around non-material awards. 
So that's a sort of a dull enough answer, but there you go. We like those as well. <laughs> um, Caroline, is your answer dull or more exciting? <laughs> uh, I, I think I think it's the same, and that's I guess that's a dull answer. And I, and I just wanted to add that um, being represented by organizations that can bring on actions uh, in Sweden that has not been uh, put into the law. It's it's um, you, each member state can choose whether or not to allow that, and in Sweden, so that's I think that's why we we may see less kind of actions in Sweden uh, rather than in those countries who, who's actually chosen to go that path and lowing organization to represent a large number of um, uh, individuals. So it's, but, but we will see cases definitely. There's always going to be um, some people angry enough to bring on claims. And, and personally, I think it would be very interesting to see what the court will find and what awards, if, if we can see a trend, if it's going to be um, yeah. higher damages or not so and interesting like in terms of you know what litigator does that work right i mean i come out as, as a data protection lawyer that's kind of morphed into kind of doing more contentious work um but often those claims uh you know it's, it's the insurance company that's going to step in uh, because they could be made by employers for example and the nature of the claim is such that it's the insurance defense litigators that are that are doing the claim so as a law firm when you look at your litigation resources and you have your team of the people primed to do data protection litigation, well, it may be your insurance defense team that are actually going to get the mandates. So you need to have different, uh, you know, get beyond the silos of your organization and, and have your tech litigators talk to your insurance defense people. Sounds very 2021. Yeah, yeah. We, we're, see, we're seeing a lot of um, clients having cyber insurance, cybersecurity breach insurance, and they usually have a dedicated law firm that, you know, handles all the... Uh, uh, all the cases so so um i i think i think that's the road it will take at least when it comes to data breaches and then and, and the fallout from that now as a nordic law firm we also have to ask what's the most interesting thing that you know about the nordics philip about well okay well so i'm kind of into sports when i'm not given data protection advice and i did triathlon for a bunch of years and i'm always looking at kind of outdoor sports so sweden has kind of invented a new outdoor multi-sport event it's called otillo in the last few years i don't know if you've heard of it it involves doing lots of running and swimming often like across islands and there's a particular race outside stockholm i think every september which when i grow up and have more time i want to do <laughs> and it involves like swimming between islands climbing onto rocks running across an island jumping in so this is a swedish invention i think otillo it comes from the name of a hotel uh, where the first one of these races, near where the first one of these races was held. So there you go. That's something of, of interest to me and a, a relatively new Nordic sport. And you may see me up there. Uh. We're happy to have you, Philip. You're yeah. welcome. Yeah, I have a lot, um, several friends who's done that, actually, and it, it's quite fun. Uh, yeah. It can be quite cold, so let, let's have you here in the summer. Once the world gets back to you know a better place, we were very happy to have you here. I, I was about to say there's a similar race here in Helsinki, so we're happy to invite you over. And I was really impressed by seeing that you're also counsel to Strava, because yes. as an avid cyclist, that's also where I spend my free time. So looking forward, uh, looking forward to this. So Caroline, I mean, you're a Swede, but what would you say? I'm usually always say that we do not have polar bears. It's actually not as cold as everyone think it is. Um, can get a bit rainy but i think that's there's no polar bears in the streets so if anyone thought that no that's not true 
<laughs> Glad we cleared that up. Um, so what would you say is the funniest moment you've experienced in a hearing or, or a courtroom or even a meeting? Um, well, I haven't, I mean, it's more embarrassing than funny. I mean, when I was a junior lawyer, we went down, I got into what's called a master's court. It's kind of like a housekeeping court, you know, where loads of mini motions are being held one every five minutes. And I was waiting to be called to ask for an extension in a case. And, you know, as a sort of very young guy, I sort of had my hands in my pockets. I was just leaning against the wall. I didn't need any papers because I was just going to ask. And the judge, I was like five cases away from being cold. So I was just slouching. And the judge just stopped the hearing in his other case. And he spotted me slouching. And he said, will the gentleman, you know, leaning against the wall with his hands in his pockets, please stand up straight. <laughs> so, and then I did. And I was shocked. And I... And then he just got on with the motion, which didn't concern me whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Lesson learned, stand up in court. Yes. All straight. <laughs> so Caroline, has anybody ever told you to stand up straight? Um, not yet. Um, but but I it also I think all the funny moments goes back to when you're a junior lawyer. One of my first day as a law firm, I was in a meeting and everyone was speaking Danish. And um, Danish is similar to Swedish. A lot of Swedish people understand it, but I, I don't. And I was in 30 minutes in that meeting. And to this day, I have no idea what it was about. And I don't know <laughs> if someone asked me if I should do something. And I, I guess no one told me to get back with anything. But that's still a funny moment, me not being able to speak up that I did not understand a thing during that meeting. So you were smiling and nodding, basically. Taking notes. I, I I should have kept those notes because I, I, you know, I did not understand the thing. So speak up, would I? That's what I would say to my young self in those situations. Fantastic! So thank you both very much for having joined us today on the podcast. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Great to be had. Thank you. Thanks so much. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. We will be back soon with more. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode or wish to continue the discussion online, please follow our LinkedIn profile or other Hannah Stelman social media channels.